Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Matthew tonight, chapter 9. Um, I've got some crazy text to read, okay? We're going to go through four chapters tonight. Obviously, we're not going to read four chapters right now, but I am going to read a a segment, you know, a series of segments here that bring us up through a certain point. And so if you would follow with me either in your Bible or on the screen while we just read uh, tonight the text, we're going to start where we left off. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. 10, and then just follow me in succession as we go through this together, and then we'll get into our our study tonight. And so Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, it says that it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat, that means he sat for dinner in the house, behold, many publicans, that's tax collectors, officials, and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, uh, the, the, the Bible is very distinct. It separates tax collectors and sinners every time because tax collectors uh, were considered by them even worse than sinners because they were Jews that were basically working for Rome, and so they were even worse than sinners. And so there, there's a distinction always made between the tax collectors and the sinners. But Jesus didn't seem to care, and he sat down with both. And it says they sat down with him and his disciples. And it says that when the Pharisees, that was the uh, moral enforcement code officers, the religious people, saw it, they said to his disciples, why Edith, your master, with publicans and sinners. Why is Jesus associating with these shady people? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, They that be whole, those that are complete, those that are well, need not a physician, but they that are sick do. But go and learn what that means, that I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Well, then came to him the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples fast not? And Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber, the bridegroom, mourn, that is the bridal party, the groomsmen, the best man, can they mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, his presence will be withdrawn. And then shall they fast. Fasting serves a purpose. It's not done just because. And then Jesus says this, inspired by the interaction. He says, no man puts a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. And the idea is that you have a tear in your denim and you want to patch it because you don't want to get rid of that pair of jeans yet that fits so well and is all broken in. But nobody takes a new piece of denim and and patches it. And the reason is... Because that which is put in to fill up the tear takes from the garment and the tear is made worse. In other words, when the new piece of fabric breaks in, it is going to shrink. And as you seamed it, it's going to rip along the seam because it's now breaking in. The old piece is not going to shrink. And so the tear is made worse. And he says, neither do men put new wine into old bottles or old wine skins. They would store their wine in uh, skins, animal skins. And as the, the wine would ferment, the skins would expand 
But if you put new wine into old bottles, then the bottles would break and the wine would run out and the bottles would perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. If you put new wine into a used old skin, then when the wine ferments and expands, it will tear the bottle. You get the idea. And so uh, Jesus' response to their questions concerning who he's associating with and the customs he observes is this illustration about patches and skins. Now leave uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse where we left off and turn to verse 36, just the very end of the chapter. And it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, and the laborers are few. So pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus uh, showing his compassion, his desire to reach those that need to be reached. We'll leave there. And now turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says, Now when John, and this is John the Baptist had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said unto him, or they said to Jesus, these disciples of John, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed, by the way, Jesus says, is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And so John the Baptist was a prophet. He was the forerunner, the one who had paved the way for Jesus to come. And now Jesus' fame and ministry is growing and rising and John has been cast in prison for his testimony, and in prison, he's confused. He doesn't understand why, being faithful to do what he was asked to do, he is being rewarded with jail, jail time. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and basically has them ask the question, hey, look, are you the Messiah or not? And essentially, he's saying, like, look, if you're the Savior, then please get me out of here. Spring me, please. Pull some strings. Do what you can. I don't like this situation. It's not good. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, tell John, just wait, he'll be out in three weeks. Jesus says, go tell John the things that you're seeing. And by the way, as they go, he says, blessed are those that are not offended or stumbled, those that aren't scandalized by what happens to them because they follow me, because they obey my will for their life. Look down at verse 10. Jesus says, concerning John, after the disciples have left to those around him, he says, for this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare the way before you. Truly, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding. He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I want you to mark that in your mind. He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Jesus making a distinction between two groups. Those that are part of the kingdom and those that aren't. John being one of them at this time. Verse 27 of uh, chapter 11. Jesus said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then the great invitation, verse 28. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, 
and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would we pray with me uh, as we begin our, our study? Lord, we just thank you for this text and for your truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would take the, um, the, 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 the theme of this and that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to see our lives through the lens of it and to understand your ways in a more perfect way. And so we ask you, Lord, to please anoint us with your spirit to teach us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's motive is to introduce Jesus' mission, at least for the first third of his book. After giving to us in chapters past a brief intro of his birth, his incarnation, and his presentation to the nation as as the Messiah, we're told introductorily concerning Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, verse 17, that it says that from that time, it says that Jesus went forth to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, really, what Matthew is seeking to do as we lay the foundation in this first third of the book is to really establish what this means, that the kingdom of God that Jesus is coming to introduce and usher in and to show what that actually means. And so, that's what he has done. As Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us the kingdom's creed, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, when Jesus gave that great sermon, it's the creed of the kingdom. Last week, we saw the kingdom's king as the authority of Jesus was demonstrated through the miracles that showed that he was of a different kind of authority than anything that the world has ever seen previously. The king of the kingdom is present. And tonight, as we look at what takes place in these four chapters, what Matthew presents to us really is kingdom's culture. That is the culture of the kingdom that Jesus is seeking to introduce and he successfully ultimately did. Now, I know that's a lot of text to to cover four chapters in this whole thing. It sounds like a lot, but really there's only three things that are presented to us in this four chapter span. The first is kingdom conflict. And we saw that in the beginning text that we read, the conflict, the clash of cultures that resulted from Jesus coming into what was already instituted by them. So chapter 9, the portion that we read, and all of chapter 12, which we didn't read, but you can read, shows to us the conflict between Jesus and the system that he was coming to interrupt. Uh, You see it very clearly. The second thing that's presented in these four chapters is a series of signs or miracles and again we didn't read it but it's the portion of nine between the wineskins and the end Jesus does four miracles that highlight what he came to do and we'll talk about those in just a moment and then the third thing that happens in this four chapter span is a call and a commission to the apostles that was followed then by the short exchange between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, and all of that to highlight for us the heart of Jesus for his kingdom to expand. So the calling that he gave to the 12 and the authority that he imparted to them to go forth, to preach, to spread the word, and to prepare the way for what would ultimately come. So all that to say is I know that it's a very large chunk of text, but the reason why we're doing it is because I don't want to lose the big picture point in the small picture details of what was going on. 
And so as we look at this segment and what is really happening is that the culture of the kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus came to present is being shown to us. Now, we all understand that every kingdom and every nature uh, of our nation rather has a culture. The, the word culture is defined, if you look it up in the dictionary, and it's going to come up on the screen, as the set of shared values, goals, and practices that characterize a nation, institution, or an organization. I'll say it again. The set of shared values, goals, and practices that characterize or define a nation, an institution, or an organization. Now, culture in that context exists on many levels. There is a national culture. We understand what American culture, we have an idea in our mind what that means. It also exists in a regional context. The the northeast portion of the United States has a completely different culture than the southeastern United States. The things that we value, the things that we give ourselves to, and the things that we do. Culture also takes on a local, a more local flavor. Even within a region, there's a difference in cultures between uh, things on a smaller level. We understand the concept of a company having a culture. If you work for a company or you're a part of an organization, there's a culture. There's a set of values and standards. There's practices that characterize or define what things are like within that culture, even down to the level of an individual family. Families have a culture. Households have a culture. We have a culture in our home. And so the culture in our home really is created by the shared values, goals, and practices of me and my wife. We are the founders. We set the tone. And so our personality, coupled with our behavior that's driven by our values that creates a culture within our house now i happen to think that the culture within our home is fairly healthy you know it's and here's why just because it's birthed out of who we are as people and out of what jesus has done in our life and there isn't a huge dichotomy between who me and my wife are and what we want and expect and do in our home and and because of the congruency there's health in that and so part of those characteristics because of who we are is that the culture in our home is very calm we're not fly off the handle type a it's my way or the highway type of people we're both pretty flexible and yielding when it comes to what we're going to do or how things are going to be done and so there's a culture of calmness that exists in our home there's also a a culture of non-complaining and that really just comes from my wife because by nature i'm a complainer but she's not and she's so good at it that it has become the culture of our home so much so that when someone complains you actually notice it because it's just so out of the ordinary in our household we have a fairly service driven culture in our home meaning that we kind of look out for each other that doesn't mean that we're not selfish and that we don't do selfish things but we we do kind of like look out for for other people and when someone does something that's exceedingly selfish you notice it because it's just not the culture of our home to do that and so our values and behaviors plus our personalities have determined the culture And so because there's a culture, when something happens in the home that's countercultural, you really notice it. 
Okay, so we had uh, guests and visitors in our home a while back, and one of the parents uh, had given their, their phone to one of the kids, and the kid was looking at the phone, and the parent said, can I please have my phone? And the kid said, no. And, and because that's not the culture in our house, like there was something that happened when that no came out of that little voice after that clear request was given that even my little boys who barely know right from left, they, their eyes went wide. Not because, and, and not because, you know, you know, we would spank them for that. It's just so out of the ordinary that they noticed it because it's not the culture. It's very obvious. It would be like, it would be like if you're walking down the street of New York City and somebody sees a rat and they step on it and pick it up and eat it. You know, you would notice that because that's un-American. We just don't do things like that, you know. And so culture is a very important part of a kingdom. Now, Jesus... He was a culture unto himself. And he came into a world and into a culture that was already established. Now, the culture that Jesus came into, ancient Israel, in the days when Messiah walked the earth, that culture was shaped and defined by the values, behaviors, and practices of what we would call the law of Moses, or the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. And so the values, goals, and practices of the culture that Jesus came into, they were very institutional. It was a culture of the law. Things were driven by commandments and ordinances and customs and traditions. There were positions and offices that were important to people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the lawyers, the scribes. These were the people that were respected and listened to and looked up to in that culture. It was a culture that demanded conformity. That you did the things that Moses said, come hell or high water, and you were monitored, and those standards were maintained. And if you upheld them, then you were rewarded, and if you violated them, then you were shamed. It was also a culture that was extremely exclusive. Favor, position, and honor were earned by adherence to the law, the custom, and the code that were there. And so the mission of that culture was essentially that if you can keep the law and the ordinances and the traditions and climb and appear and be and do what you're supposed to do, then you will excel, you'll receive honor, and ultimately you will have the blessing of God upon your life. Because it's the law of God that we exist to uh, serve and live. Here was the problem with that culture. Is that no one ever has been able to keep the law of God. No one can do it. It's not in us to be able to do it. And so the effect of that culture upon the people that lived in the culture is that there was a constant pressure that was on them. There was a constant and extreme Effort to try to do things that were contrary to their fallen human nature. And when they succeeded in keeping those laws and customs, then those people were elevated and lifted up with pride. They were rewarded with big robes and high hats and nice titles, and everybody paid attention to them. But when they failed to keep the laws and customs, then they were filled with shame. And so there was either pride or shame 
or this was the big one hypocrisy because if i can't keep the standards and laws that are required of me and yet i need to appear as though i am in order to get what i need in the society then i need to put on a facade or a front that makes it look like i'm better than i actually am that's called hypocrisy i'm making you think i'm something that i'm actually not in secret in my mind or behind closed doors that was the culture that jesus came into now unfortunately there are many new testament churches that reflect this type of culture the the culture of ancient israel where prominence is based upon merit where there's an unofficial caste system where there are unwritten rules that you don't really learn what they are until the gossip whip hits you in the back you know and you find out what you weren't supposed to be doing you know or what's right and wrong because someone was talking about you behind your back and somehow it made it back around and you found, and then you find out oh wow there's more to this than meets the eye and that's common in new testament churches now oftentimes churches don't teach that but there's an implication that's given that if you want to be blessed by god then you better toe the line you better keep the standards you better raise up to it or at least make it look like you are because god's looking for people that can do it and that's kind of the culture that exists in many churches now jesus comes into the scene and jesus was the king of the kingdom and jesus would be the one that would set the tone for what the culture of the church of the kingdom of eternity would be now the culture that jesus brings was diametrically opposed to that which existed when he came hence the conflict and here was the conflict is that the culture of jesus was not and is not institutional you write it read it conform to it and do it it's not institutional but rather it's internal the culture that jesus brings is something that happens on the inside and it's based upon not the old covenant of laws rules and regulations but on the new covenant that he calls the law of the spirit of life that's imparted by him and that changes us from the inside out not the outside in and therefore it's not based on something that's inscribed on a scroll or a stone but rather it's imparted to us in the heart now throughout the chapters there are a series of events that reveal kingdom culture that's what we're going to see in jesus here now what are they what are the hallmark attributes the values behaviors and practices that define the culture of heaven divine the culture of jesus kingdom that he's seeking to bring in number one and if you're taking notes you could write this down is acceptance the number one hallmark is acceptance and it's demonstrated to us in the opening text that we read tonight jesus having just called matthew a tax collector to be one of the 12 apostles is now brought into a home where many tax collectors and sinners that's fun to say are all gathered around and jesus the savior the sinless one is sitting fellowshipping interacting and embracing sinners and tax collectors and that's a cultural clash because those that have the prominence in israel don't do that 
And you don't do that in Israel, especially if you're a rabbi, especially if you're a religious Jew. And so they question Jesus, not directly, because he's got some authority. They come to his disciples and they say, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus catches wind of it, probably just knew it, and he addresses it head on. And he says, look, they that are whole, well, have no need for a physician, but they that are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Listen, Jesus freely and openly received, welcomed, and embraced even the lowest and basis of society. God knows that humanity is broken, and he wants to fix it. And he knows that all can be made well. And listen to me, church. Acceptance is the foundation for change. Therefore, it tells us that change in the heart cannot be earned. It has to happen from another place. We can't change ourselves. And the acceptance of God is the place where it begins. And the biggest difference between the culture of Jesus and the culture he came into is that they said, earn acceptance, and we'll work from there. Jesus said, I'm going to accept you as you are, and I'm going to create an atmosphere of unconditional love where God can do amazing things to change you from the inside out. It's acceptance. And that's the culture that God wants for his church and amongst his people, is a culture of acceptance because it fosters irresistible love which then enables God to change people's hearts and lives. That's what happens. We have seven of us in our family. We have five kids. And the first four of my kids in birth order were extremely normal and easy to raise. Number five was a challenge. He knows he's being talked about tonight. He's going to be seven this year. And the funny thing was is that all four of my older kids, they adapted very quickly to the culture of our home. They just did. It didn't take much effort or much work. It just kind of happened. But not Noah. Noah was different. Noah was like, I, I wouldn't even say the black sheep. I would more like say he was like an alien or something. <laughs> like, he just didn't get it. He was totally different. Whereas the others would be calm, he was crazy. Whereas the others would go with the flow, he would just kind of just kick and fight and bite until he got his way. And you just couldn't get through to him. There was no, there was nothing. We didn't know what to do. I remember, I remember thinking, he's going to be in jail. Like, I got one. I got one of those people that people are going to judge me for, for this, you know, the whole thing. You know, and, and if, if Noah being a part of my family was based upon his ability to adapt... And my acceptance of him was conditioned upon whether or not he can do it. We would have thrown him out a long time ago. But no, he was a part of our family. He was born into it, and he just didn't get it. And we had to accept him and be patient with him and allow the culture to do what the culture does. And now, at the age of seven, he's an amazing human being. 
He's one of my favorites. I have five favorites. But he's, he's, he's actually one of them. He made the list. You know? and, but it's amazing to have seen what has happened. And, and we didn't really, I'm not going to take any credit. It's not like God gave us this wisdom when we were like, well, this is how we work with him and we can write a book now. We didn't know. We just were who we were. And the culture of our home got into him and it affected change in his life. But if he had not been accepted, that never could have happened. The culture of the kingdom is acceptance. Another mark or hallmark of kingdom culture is that it's appropriate. And it's illustrated in in what Jesus was confronted with by the disciples of John. They said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples don't fast? What gives? Why aren't you keeping the customs? And Jesus looks at that and says, that's so easy. I will answer that with my hands tied behind my back. He's like, look, why do you fast? You fast because you want to seek Someone whom you're having trouble finding. And I'm here right now. I'm with them. It would make no sense at all for them to partake of this custom because the reason for the custom is already fulfilled right in their midst. But the days will come when it will be necessary and then they will. But I'm not into just doing customs, sacraments, religious things just to say that we did it. It doesn't make sense right now. And the culture of Jesus' kingdom, I'm so thankful for this, is one of appropriateness. Meaning that if it doesn't make sense, don't do it. I, I heard the story recently of a church um, in this region, not, not in Dutchess County, um, but there was a woman who had um, been living with a man for 15 years, unmarried, and they had three children, and they were living like a regular family but they hadn't gotten married. They were both unsaved. And the woman stumbled into a church, not probably not, you know, just came upon. She heard the message of the gospel. Her heart was opened and she received Christ as savior. She was born again. And the church came to this woman after finding out that she wasn't legitimately married. And they said to her that you need to either move out and separate from your husband or get married or you have to leave this church. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, for real? Like, you know, this just happened in her heart, in her life. Give God some time. He does things that make sense. He's not into the letter. He's not the DMV. He's not a code enforcement officer. He didn't give us his instructions and sacraments, if, if there's such a thing. He didn't give us those things so that we could serve those things. And God could, could show all, all the angels and say, look, I've got these people that do the things that I've asked. Look at they're, they're doing the things that I asked. They, they're being baptized and they're, they're fasting once a week and they're doing. He doesn't do that. He gave those things to us to serve us, to help us to be a guide and a help and a protection for us. But there is so much complication that exists even in the heart of one human being. There is so much complication that exists in the circumstances of every human being that to try to make a blanket application of every little part of God's word to every single life, you just can't do that. And he's a God who makes sense in the things. Now, I will say this, lest you write me a letter or say that I've gone crazy. There are things and times that God asks us to obey and do even though they don't make sense to us. And faith says for us that know him that I'm going to do what he said even though I don't feel like it or it doesn't make sense because I trust him. 
But he's a God who does what's appropriate. Another mark of kingdom culture is that it's absolute. He gives the illustration of the skins and the fabric. And here's the sense, the point that Jesus was trying to make by talking about wineskins and denim. He was saying essentially that, listen, you cannot take the culture that you were born into and then try to take bits and pieces of the culture that I have created and try to meld the two. You can't cherry pick elements of what I am and try to add them to things that you naturally are and expect that your life is going to work. This is an all or nothing citizenship. You're either completely mine or you're completely not. But if you try to mix the two, your life is going to tear apart and both the joy of my wine and the container of your life, both of them are going to be ruined. It's a culture that's absolute, and that's important for us to understand. Oftentimes when, when I share the Lord with people or invite them to church or, or whatever, I'll often say to them, I'll say, listen, would you just do me a favor, if you can do this, is try to just forget everything that you've ever heard about God before in any church or any place. Just try to listen as though you were hearing it for the very first time and just take it for what it is. Same thing with the Bible. Read the Bible as though you had no traditional background or or formal introduction to God. Just read what he says and take it for what it is. Don't mix it with anything else. One of the stumbling blocks that kept me from coming to Christ is that I thought God was what God was shown to me. And so God to me was Sister Patricia and Principal Shakao and the local, I don't want to, give it all away the the people that said who god was and it kept me from coming to god because i couldn't let go of the concept that that had driven into me but when god finally brought me to the place of desperation where i said to god god whoever you are that's what i want it was then that the culture of the kingdom could come into my heart and i could see that jesus was completely different than anything i'd ever known he's absolute the fourth hallmark of his culture is that he's effective After the wineskin saying, there are four signs that Jesus gives, and all four signs have one thing in common. They demonstrate that the system that was, the culture that existed, was not working for the people that lived in it. A woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, she had spent all of her living, she had tried to get help from the system she was a part of, it failed her, it couldn't help a ruler of the synagogue, a leader of the very culture and system. His daughter fell sick and died, and the system that he was a leader of wasn't able to fix him or help him. Two blind men, they had no vision, they couldn't see clearly, and the system that they were in couldn't help. They came to Jesus, Jesus healed their blindness. And a man who was demon-possessed and could not be delivered of the demon that haunted his life And the system that he was a part of had no power over that spirit. Jesus cast it out with his word. Jesus immediately healed the woman. He raised the leader's daughter from the dead. He gave sight to the blind and he cast out the demon. And do you know what the priests and Pharisees said when Jesus did those things? They said he's doing it with the power of Satan. Satan has given him this power to do it. You understand the clash of kingdoms. Here was the point that Jesus was making. Listen, if the culture, kingdom culture that you're a part of isn't working in your life, the things of God, the power of God, the work of God, 
then maybe you need to assess if the culture or the kingdom that you're a part of is actually the culture or the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It should go up on the screen. He said this, he said, For this cause we thank God without ceasing, because that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, watch this, which effectually works also in you that believe. See, God's person, God's spirit, and God's word is intended to work within our lives. And if it's not producing change, if it's not bringing us from what we were to what he calls us to be, then we need to question whether or not we're really following him or what we're really believing. The word of God works. And Jesus is saying, look, you guys have this culture, you have this picture, you have the outward appearance, but it's not really working within your life. The culture of the kingdom is effective, it works. It's also, number five, intentionally inclusive. And that's illustrated by what Jesus said when it says that he had compassion on the multitude. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers to the harvest. And then he gave authority to the 12 and said, you guys go now. In the entirety of chapter 10, you'll see it's a red letter chapter, is Jesus giving instructions to the 12 that when you go, this is how you go. And the reason for those instructions is because Jesus wanted everything they do to give credibility to the message and foster trust in the audience. So when he said, do it this way and don't ask for money and don't be a burden and if they don't listen to you, don't pester them, just keep moving. All of those instructions were because Jesus has a heart that wants to reach people. He's not trying to exclude. He's trying to include. And so his heart is to include. He's intentionally inclusive. And then number six, and finally, the culture of the kingdom. The values, behaviors, and practices that define the kingdom that Jesus came to to, to bring is that it is a culture that is not acquired externally, but rather it's instilled internally. You have the episode with Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist. And again, John was offended because he didn't like what God was allowing to take place in his life in the particular season that he was in. And so being a prominent man, he sends disciples. They ask of Jesus, hey, are you the Messiah or aren't you? And Jesus gives the thing. He says, hey, listen, you guys, go back and tell them what you're seeing. The blind see goes through the whole list of all the effective things that he's doing and then tacks on at the end, but blessed are those who are not offended in me. Now, if you want to really understand what John the Baptist was feeling, read verse 14. It's going to come up on the screen of the same chapter and listen to what Jesus says concerning John the Baptist. He says that if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was to come. Now, the prophet had prophesied that God would send Elijah as a forerunner to prepare the way for the Christ when he would come. And Jesus is saying, essentially, that John has the spirit of Elijah. He would say that more definitively in another place. He's saying, listen, if you'll receive it, this is Elijah, which was to come. John was just like Elijah. Now, I want you to think about Elijah, for those of you that know. Do you remember what happened to Elijah? 
Elijah did everything right and then was threatened by an evil queen and he flipped out and tried to check out on God. Remember? Those of you that know the story. He said, he said, I quit. This is ridiculous. I have done everything that has been asked of me. And, and God is allowing this woman to, to, to terrorize me. I'm out of here. And he ran 300-something miles from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai, down in the Sinai Peninsula. And God comes and meets him there. And he's like, Elijah, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I've been very gentle to the Lord of and you're treating me really bad. This is unfair. I hate what you're doing to my life. And this is Elijah, what are you doing here? He does it again. God says, Elijah, go home. Please go back to Israel. You're not understanding something. And God did something there and something happened in his life. Now watch this. This is huge. Verse 11 of the same chapter. We read it before, but read it again. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, John is saved, okay? We're going to see John in heaven. You understand? John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus said, man, among them born of women, he was the greatest. But listen, John was a part of the old covenant. John was the last of the old covenant prophets. Therefore, John was saved, but he was not yet a part of the kingdom culture that Jesus was bringing in. He was saved, but not a part taker of kingdom culture. The point is that John didn't quite get it yet. That's why Jesus said, blessed are they that aren't offended, those that aren't stumbled because of me and what I allow in their life. John was stuck in old covenant culture. I did everything right, and God's allowing me to suffer. I've done everything that he's asked, and he's allowing me to be in prison. God is not fair. That was what was going on in the heart of John. That's why he sent those disciples to question Jesus in the way that he did. Now listen to me. There are many Christians in churches today that are saved, but they have yet to really experience kingdom culture. They're still trying in some way to earn the favor of God, to earn the respect of God. And therefore, when their efforts seem to be rewarded with tragedy or trial or pain, they become offended with God. And they say, God, why are you allowing this in my life? I'm doing, I'm trying so hard. I am obeying everything. I am praying without ceasing. I am letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly. I am letting the peace of God rule my heart. I am loving my enemy. I am forgiving those that offend me. I am doing everything and you're allowing Am I the only one that, that, that can go through this? I've heard this before. Listen, the hallmark of being a part of old covenant culture is that your relationship with God is marked with frustration. And not freedom. It's supposed to be freedom. Now here's why all this matters as we wrap things down. Is that the culture of the new covenant is completely different from that of the old. Do you understand that? I want you to listen to how the Lord defines new covenant culture. It's Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33. It's going to come up on the screen. 
The prophet says this. He says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my will, my desire. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. I am going to put what I want for them inside of them. My will is going to manifest in the form of their desires. They're going to want to do what it is that I am putting in their heart to do. That's the way the new covenant is going to work. And not only that, but I'm going to be their God, meaning I'm going to walk with them through the experience. I'm going to take them by the hand and lead them in this kingdom culture life. He goes on. He says that they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, God is saying that the power and presence of my spirit in your life is going to be sufficient to be able to lead you. You're not going to need someone to tell you what's right and wrong and what you should and shouldn't do. The spirit that's inside of you is going to do it. And not only that, but sin is not going to be a part of the equation. Meaning that your acceptance is front-loaded. Your acceptance into my family, your membership as part of me is already a done deal. I'm not going to remember your sin. I'm not going to take sin into account. That's not going to be a part of it. That is new covenant culture. That's what it is. He makes my will his will. You say, well, that sounds extremely dangerous. Because if I read between the lines what you're saying, you're saying that if I want to do something and I'm a new covenant Christian, then I can just go do it because God's going to write his will in my heart. You know what? I am saying that. But I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. And I want you to think about this and consider it for just a minute. See, I have in me, I have a desire to move south especially this time of year, really bad. And and I could easily say, okay, well, he's written his will upon my heart and I have the freedom in this new covenant and I'm accepted and he's not going to throw me off. I am free to move south. And you know what? I am. And he's not going to disfellowship me. He's not going to abandon me if I choose to move south. But wait, if I stop for a minute, And I think with the brain that God gave me and I start to think and I think, well, what does it mean if I move south? And I start to weigh it out. I start to think, well, I'm going to start over and I'm going to cut off the roots that I've taken a long time to dig in in a different region. And it's going to mean a different thing for my kids. And and I start going through the whole thing and I start realizing that my action has consequences. Things are going to happen if I do what I want to do. Now, I ask myself the question the second time, and this is the key. I ask myself the question the second time, do I really want to move south? And you know what the answer is now? No. Part of me really does, but a bigger part of me that has now spoken and counseled me is making me realize that I really don't want to move south. Now, that's a very benign example of things. There are other things I want to do. Sometimes I want to fly off the handle at my kids. Sometimes I want to let people have it so bad. 
I, I wanted, and I could say, God, you said you put desires in my heart. I really want to. I'm free. I'm... But I asked myself the second time, if I do that, what's going to happen? And when I asked the second time, I said, do I really want to do that? I go, mm, no, I don't want to do that. Do, do you think it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is called the counselor? See, he comes into our, sometimes we want to partake of something that we know is wrong, but I want to. That's the new covenant. You said you write desires in my heart, right? But what's that going to do? And the Holy Spirit begins to show me, well, if you do that, you're going to not only shipwreck your life, but you're going to shipwreck a whole lot of other lives. And you're going to sow things into your heart that are going to come to fruition, and you're going to have to eat the fruit that you yourself have sown. And when I ask the second time, do I really want to do that? Well, the answer is no, I don't. You start to understand how this new covenant works, is that he begins to write his laws in my heart. Now, do I get it right every time? No. But I'm free and accepted, and so therefore, as consequences come, I learn I need to ask the question again before I do it again. Before, Listen, we can do what we want. Watch this. I know it's getting late. Don't worry. We're going to wrap it up soon. I had something happen to me a couple of weeks ago where somebody said something to me that was the most disrespectful thing that anyone's ever said, at least in a long time. I mean, it, like, it, it, it was like a hammer. Like, it just came down, and it was so, like, just right there. And it was like, it shook me. I was like, whoa, you know. And, and I'm not like a, a reactionary, you know, so I just kind of took it, and it went in. But it, it really went in. You know, it was like, you know, you, you know how you stub your toe, it's with you for a while, you know. And, and, and it really was like, well, how do I want to handle this? And that was the question. How do I want to handle this? How do I want to handle this? I'll tell you how I want to handle this. <laughs> I want to, and, 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 and here's, here's what I concluded, my will, what I want. I am going to handle this in the most Christian way that I can. I'm going to cut that person out of my life. I will still be cordial with them. I will still interact with them, but I'm done with them. That's how I'm going to handle it. And I concluded that that was the way I was going to do it. I, I'm, I have such a heart of stone like that that I can do it. I can, it won't affect me at all. And so, boom, done, okay? I went like that for like two, three days, and, and, and I thought it was over, but it wasn't over. You know why? Because the anger was still there. I was still angry at this person. And that anger was starting to affect me, and I found myself starting to get angry angry at other things that normally wouldn't make me angry and I began to realize like I haven't really properly dealt with this I handled it wrong and so here's what I did because I asked myself the question the second time you know how do I really want to handle this how do I want to handle this and I thought well, I'm not going to go to the person because that's just like throwing wood on a fire and that's stupid people talk too much and it's crazy so I'm not going to bother with that but I got to do something else so here's what I did I remember right where I was standing, I was all by myself, and I said these words. I said, Jesus, this is affecting me in a way that I don't like and I don't want, and I know it's not your will. And so, Jesus, before you, I release the debt that I feel that that person owes me. They owe me nothing. They don't owe me an apology, an explanation, or any vengeance that would come. I, as though I'm signing the debt off and giving it to you, let it be on record in heaven that I forgive this person completely and there's no evidence for me to go collect. It's gone. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, I walked away from that spot that I was at 
And you know what? The anger didn't go away. I still felt it. But the infection was gone. And three days after that, I forgot that there was any offense at all. And when I saw that person, there was tenderness and love in my heart towards them. Okay, that, it was, it, I did it. It was my will. This is how I want to handle it. It was not the right way. The anger affected me. And then God adjusted. And he, by his spirit, led me in the way to handle that correctly. Do you understand? It's amazing. The new covenant, this whole thing. Oh boy, I'm out of time and I have a couple things left to say. We'll wrap this up. Here's how you know. Here's how you know when kingdom culture is really working in you. Remember John the Baptist? He was offended. He's upset. You're not doing things the way that I want. You know this whole thing. When Jesus the Holy Spirit is in your life and it's affecting your life, it is a guarantee that you're going to go through seasons of crazy, crippling anxiety, painful circumstances, major disappointments, unanswered prayers, sleepless nights, times that you're angry with God, questioning him and frustrated with everything that he's doing in your life. And listen, you're going to dig through your heart and you're going to try to find every reason, every emotion, every option that you have, but eventually the shovel you're digging with is going to hit a rock that says, I know that God's good. I know that he's good. I just can't see now what he's doing or why this is happening. And when you can come to a place where you can accept what he's allowing because you know that he's good, it's then that kingdom culture is affecting your life. Let's close with culture's invitation. Matthew eleven twenty seven through 29. Jesus said famous words. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Jesus is saying two things in that passage. He's saying, I want to remove from you the yoke of the culture that you have been under. The pressure, the effort, the frustration, the legalism, the selfism, the formalism, the triharderism, the paganism. I want to do things in your life. I want to separate from you the issue that you've been struggling with for 12 years that this yoke has not been able to help you with. Or the 12-year-old that is dying right in front of your eyes and this yoke can't help you with that. I want to remove the old yoke and then I want to place a new yoke upon you that I call easy. And you know why it's easy? Because the work comes from within. And Jesus is bearing under the yoke with you. And he gives the invitation to whosoever will to come into his kingdom and to allow his culture to affect who we are. We're accepted, we're allowed, we're loved. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for, for your word. And, and it's an amazing thing that you've brought into this world and brought into our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that the glory of this new covenant, this gift of your spirit that you've imparted, that you've allowed, that you would come alongside, that you would come inside, and that you would change us in ways that nothing else could. And so tonight, Lord, we yield and surrender. We align in trust. And we ask you, Lord, that where we're frustrated, 
where we're trying too hard, where we're handling things the wrong way, where we're seeking to earn what you've freely given, that even now, right now, Lord, you would remove the old yoke of religion, of self-reliance, of hypocrisy and legalism, that you'd remove it from our shoulders and that, Jesus, you would place upon us the ornament of your grace, your blood, your cross, the removing of our sin, the adoption as sons and brothers, and the gift of your spirit imparted and indwelling that we might truly know what it means to be citizens in your kingdom. So Lord, help us, teach us, lead us, and grow us. And if there's anyone here tonight, Lord, that you would reach by name, that you would call them unto you, I pray, Lord, now that they would open their heart to you, that they might receive the gift of your salvation and grace. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.